0: please open up your Bibles once again to the letter of the Apostle Paul to the church in Rome. I'd like to remind you of a couple of verses we looked at in Romans chapter 12. So open up there first, then we'll be getting to Romans chapter 16 in a moment. Romans chapter 12 begins the practical instruction, so to, so to speak, for this amazing letter. And in verses 9 through 13, we have the commands of what love is supposed to look like among God's people. And so, as a matter of review from what we looked into last week, I'd like to start off this morning with Romans 12, verses 9 and 10. Very important commands for us as the people of God. Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. So there should be a, a friendly, loving competition among us to see who can honor other people the most. Instead of being a society where we're all sneakily seeking after our own honor and trying to get people to think highly of us, let's be the opposite. Let's be a group of people who are very wisely and cunningly getting honor for one another, for others, and not seeking honor for ourselves. Honor is a wonderful thing, but in this case it is definitely more blessed to give than to receive. And one of the greatest pathways to honor is to honor others, as he who waters will himself be watered. And this love that we are called to have amongst ourselves is a genuine love. It's not a love that is put on, it's not a show, it's not something where I'm flattering you in order to gain the advantage and keep a position of honor for myself. But this is a genuine love that comes from the heart of God himself. And this kind of love can only be produced by God. And so as we are filled with his word, filled with his spirit, as we worship him from the heart, we will have this kind of genuine and sincere love. And this is our light. This is what shows the world that there is a Redeemer when they see our redeemed life, a life that does not seek for our own, but lays down our life for the brethren, as Jesus Christ has done. So, I just wanted you to be reminded of those important verses here at the outset, but as we come then to Romans chapter 16 for our text this morning, we ran out of time last week to get all the way through the interesting Details of the personal greetings found in the opening verses of Romans chapter 16. And so, this morning, I'd like to take a little bit of time to comment on a couple of more notable things here in this amazing passage. Now, as we looked into the passage last week, we saw that the Apostle Paul had an unfeigned, genuine, sincere love for many of the Christians who were in the city of Rome that he had met them elsewhere, or perhaps he had just heard about their ministry and just the very hearing of their love and their faithfulness to Christ has stirred within the heart of the Apostle Paul that kindred affection that we have for brothers and sisters in the Lord. And so throughout these verses, what we noted is that the Apostle Paul highlighted the work of the Lord that these beloved saints had done. And there's really two things that tie people together. There's the family ties, and there's the work ties. And the family ties is the ties that are formed in the home. You eat together, you go places together, you vacation together. Those family ties are very strong. It's the enjoyment of the results of all of your work is to, to build that home, that family. It's the reward for all of the work that you do. But also, our work is meaningful in and of itself, and we form strong connections with people through our work, ladies' work, men's work. Even children's work, as we all work together, we form those work connections. So working and rest are really the two aspects of our life. And in both, we have fellowship in the Lord. Our labor in the Lord and our rest, our enjoyment of all of the labor that we do in the Lord. You know the book of Ecclesiastes, I believe it is, where Solomon says... One handful of rest is better than two hands full of labor and striving after the wind. And if you're always working and you're never enjoying the results of your work, you have to ask yourself, well, what am I working for? But God has given us the ability to work and he's given us the ability to enjoy our work. And here I'm working, but I also get to enjoy the result of my work through the fellowship that I have with Christians who are walking in the truth. And that is a great joy. So I love my work, and I love the results of my work, and and that should be the way it is for all of us, just like the Apostle Paul here in this text. Now, when we're recognizing the work of others and giving them that honor, as Paul models here for the church at Rome, there's a few other notable things in this passage that I want to point out just in passing before we get into the meat of our text this morning. The first one is in verse 5. Take a note of verse 5 once again, where... Epinatus is singled out, my beloved Epinatus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Normally when you hear somebody being singled out, you think it's a bad thing, but we as Christians should be singling people out for praise, for good things. This is an important principle for parents, for those of you that have young children. If you only single out your children and you call on them when they're doing something wrong, well then you're probably not going to have as much success as a parent as you should. But you also want to single people out for praise. If you see one of your children doing something good, tell them. Great job. Keep up the good work. And if you want good behavior, praise is a great way of getting that. And so here Paul is praising the saints, and he's singling out Eponetus for an interesting reason, that Eponetus is the first convert to Christ in Asia. Now some people would think that you, know, you, you don't need to honor somebody for being the first convert to Christ in Asia because what did they have to do with it? It was Paul that took the gospel there and, and then God the Holy Spirit was the one who convicted his heart and drew him to Christ. And, and so why single out somebody for being the first convert? It's just kind of something that happened by happenstance and, and it wasn't really something that was notable about him. But actually it is. We should be noticing things like this and honoring people for the privileged position that they have, even if it seems like they didn't have a whole lot to do with it. And I think it's just interesting that here Epinatus is honored with that greeting that he was the first convert to Christ in Asia. And I bet he felt good about that. He's like, yeah, out of all this province, out of all this region, I was the first one that God chose to hear the gospel and believe it. And there's nothing wrong with being proud and, and honoring a position like that in Christ, recognizing God's grace. And then also, I'd like you to take note of Paul's greeting to Rufus. You find that in verse 13. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Now, what's so interesting about Rufus is that he is mentioned in the Gospel of Mark. We're pretty confident, almost, you know, 100% sure. This is the same Rufus that is talked about in the Gospel of Mark whose father carried the cross of Jesus Christ. And so Mark we believe that he wrote his gospel from Rome and that he points out the names of the names of the sons of the man who carried the cross of Jesus because they were known to the church at Rome. And here Rufus is a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and he has that honor of being the son of the man who carried the cross. Again, something that is not really an achievement And yet it's an honored position that he has, something that is notable in his life that Paul honors here. Very interesting. And then I'd like you to also take note of Paul's greeting to those who belong to the household of Aristobulus. Now, Aristobulus, we find in verse 10, and he, as history records for us, is most likely to be identified as the grandson of Herod the Great who was living in Rome. Now, when this letter was written, 57 AD, early in the year, we believe that Aristobulus had already died. But the greeting does not go to Aristobulus. The greeting goes, if you'll notice, to the family of Aristobulus or those who belong to Aristobulus. And so, when you had a a rich household, like the grandson of a king, living in Rome they would have a lot of people in their household that weren't necessarily blood relatives. They would have a lot of servants, a lot of slaves. And so among those servants and slaves of the household of Aristobulus, you'd find a number of Christians, and Paul knew about this. So in wealthy houses, God didn't often choose the head of the household for salvation, But he would choose the slaves in the household for salvation and they would be a witness and a testimony to all of the noble family that was in that household. And so even if God doesn't call someone like Aristobulus to salvation, God is still careful to put people in their lives to make the gospel known and to make it clear because God is glorified when he makes the gospel known to all people, both the high and the lower class. And this was part of God's plan for the Apostle Paul that he did not yet know about, that he was going to be used by God to preach the gospel to many Roman governors and kings after his arrest in Jerusalem, which was following up on his trip that he mentioned in chapter 15. And so God puts people in positions where they can speak the truth to rich and powerful people And I'm thankful that he does that, even if he doesn't choose many of those rich and powerful to believe. God is gracious in sending them gospel workers. Also, I'd like you to take note of the commendation that Paul gives to Andronicus and Junia there in verse 7, where he identifies them as my fellow prisoners. And here, it's doubtful in my mind that Andronicus and Junia were prisoners at the same time with the Apostle Paul. But when Paul says, my fellow prisoners, he's probably just referring to the fact that they, like Paul, have served time in prison because of their service to the Lord. And so this was a position of honor. Remember when the Apostles were arrested and they were beaten and then they were released early on in the book of Acts in Jerusalem? And they went on their way rejoicing that they had been counted worthy of suffering for Jesus Christ. And so here Paul knows that these faithful servants of the Lord had also been in prison for the testimony of Christ. And he points that out. That is a mark of honor. Being in prison for Christ is not a matter of shame. It's a matter of honor. And may God grant some of us that honor in our lifetimes as well. All right. Well, with that in mind, we want to take a quick look also at the greetings that Paul has in verses 21 through 23. So, in verses 1 through 16, we have the greetings from Paul personally to the saints who are living in Rome. And after verses 17 through 20, which are kind of an intrusion into these greetings, Paul then allows his fellow workers in Corinth, the ones who are with him in ministry, to send their greetings to the church at Rome. He starts off with Timothy. And Timothy is identified in verse 21 as my fellow worker, going along with the same big idea, the same theme in verses 1 through 16 of the labor in the Lord, the work that we do in the Lord. And and Timothy was Paul's closest fellow worker, as we see throughout the book of Acts and also the letters that were written after Paul's first Roman imprisonment. So Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you so do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. Now, Lucius, he could be the gospel writer Luke. This could be an alternate spelling for his name, and we think that's a possibility because in the book of Acts, where he's recounting this time period in Paul's life when he wrote this letter, traveling from Corinth, Luke includes himself in the group and talks about how we traveled here and there. And so Luke would have been with Paul when he was writing Romans, so this could very well be a greeting from Luke. Or it could be some other man with a similar name, because this is not how Paul refers to Luke in other letters, but it's a different spelling. So we're not sure on which Luke or Lucius this is. Jason is mentioned in the book of Acts, chapter 17. And also, Sosipater is mentioned in the book of Acts. He has a shorter version of his name, Sopater, there in Acts, chapter 20, verse 4. And Gaius, there's several Gaiuses in the New Testament, verse 23, since Paul is writing from Corinth, this, of course, is most likely the Gaius who is from Corinth, who is mentioned in 1 Corinthians, chapter 1, verse 14. So, the last greeting here on this list is one that I want to highlight where it says, Aristus, the city treasurer, and our brother Cordus greet you. Well, I guess Cordus is last, but I'm going to focus on Aristus because I love archaeology, biblical archaeology. It's been a very exciting discovery in biblical archaeology that's going to be published very soon about the name of God in the late Bronze Age. And that's not what this is about, but just be keeping your eye out for interesting archaeological news. But here... Although you may not be great at reading Greek letters, and they have been kind of worn by time, what we have is a pavement stone that has Aristus' name on it right here. There's the E, the R, the A, the S, the T, the U, and the S. So there's Aristus's name, and he's identified here with a certain title in his governance at Corinth, where Aristus lived and where Paul was writing from. Now it's a different title than what Paul mentions here, where he says the city treasurer. That's not the word for city treasurer, and so we're not sure if there was just different words that were used for the same office, or if that he held different offices at different times, but we're reasonably sure that this is the Aristus that Paul is sending greetings from here at Romans chapter 16, verse 23, and who's also mentioned in Acts chapter 19, and probably the same one in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 20. So I just love it when we have something that is written in stone from the time period that corroborates the history and just kind of puts a little bit more real life into our imagination. Of the fact that these were real people living in real cities, doing actual things, and it's not a fictional book as so many people view it and read it. Now, this morning then, we come to our text and... You're going to see, we're going to be focusing on verses 17 through 20, having briefly covered the greetings from Corinth in verses 21 through 23. Because this morning, we're going to shift gears from the warmth of our fellowship in Christ to how we're supposed to give the cold shoulder to false teachers. And this is something that is very important for the life of the church. We have something that is precious, we have something that is worth protecting. And there are those in the world who would destroy and undermine the work of Christ within the church. And so we must be on our guard that we do not give ground to the enemy. We do not give place for those who would infiltrate like spies into the work of God and undermine the work that is going on there. You say, would people really do that? Yes, people would really do that. You know, we are good-natured people because of the work of God in our lives, because of the graciousness of Christ. And so we often make the mistake of transposing our own desires, our own personality onto others. And we think, well, I'm a good-natured person who comes to church with just the desire to love others and build them up in their faith. And so I assume that's the way everyone is. And that's very natural for people to do, is just to assume that the way that I am is the way that other people are. Now, let's put the shoe on the other foot here and say, what about the evil person? What about the person who plots and schemes? What about the person who's given himself over to evil desires, who's controlled and dominated by the darkness? He also has the tendency to view others the way that he himself understands himself. And so he is suspicious of everyone. He's always on guard. He's always looking out for what other people's angle is because he can't believe that there's anyone in the world who actually is not pursuing a selfish agenda and has their own angle. And so the evil person is always suspicious, but the good person is almost never suspicious. And they are too trusting. And that's, that's the Achilles heel that Satan uses to trip up good people, is to use our own goodness, our own innocence, our own assuming that everyone has good motives and means for good things and to use that in order to infiltrate and to destroy what God is doing. Taking down from within is the tactic of the enemy and he does it very well and he's well practiced and he's got some very subtle servants who are doing that work in the church today and we must be on our guard and so this morning I am exhorting you as an individual Christian, not just the elders who are here this morning, but I'm exhorting you, as the Apostle Paul exhorts the entire church at Rome, to be on the lookout, to be a heresy hunter. That phrase, heresy hunter, has been used in a pejorative sense, as some people, they think that the only thing they're supposed to do in life is be a heresy hunter. I don't have to spend any time loving others. I don't have to spend any time preaching the truth. All I do is I go around and point out everybody's faults. That's called a fault finder. Now, I'm not encouraging you to be a fault finder, but I am encouraging you to be a heresy hunter, that you need to, as a Christian, not be naive, not be foolish, not be overly trusting, but instead have your senses trained to know when a red flag is supposed to go up and say, "Uh uh-oh, danger, there's something that could harm my spiritual life and the spiritual life of the ones that I love here. So we want to train ourselves to be good heresy hunters. We want to be as welcoming and as rejoicing and as warm as the Apostle Paul is in Romans chapter 16, but we also want to be as discerning and cunning as the Apostle Paul is here in these verses in Romans chapter 16. And God puts these verses right next to each other for that reason, so that we don't become one or the other. If we only listen to verses 17 to 20, well, we'll be imbalanced. But if we only live our lives according to verses 1 through 16, we will also be unhealthy. So, let's take a look here. Let's follow along in your Bible. I'm going to read verses 17 through 20 for us in Romans chapter 16. In the midst of all these wonderful greetings, Paul breaks in with this appeal, this exhortation. I appeal to you, brothers to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them, for such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But... I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Great verses here for us, so important. The command is to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine. Watch out for. It means you've got to keep an eye out. You've got to mark them. The, the word here is very closely related to our English word scope. So you've got to scope out the heretics who are secretly embedding themselves into the church, into the organization, into the organism, that infiltration and subversion is a satanic tactic. He does it in all realms, but especially does he concern himself with undermining and subverting the faith of the church. We have to be on our guard. When churches and Christian institutions are not on their guard, then you can be sure that Satan will subvert those organizations. If we do not stand guard, we will be toppled. There was an ancient city. They had a fortress built on a hill. And one side of the fortress was on this mountainside and they thought, well, we don't have to watch that side of the fortress. We don't have to have guards there watching all night because nobody could climb up it. And so, of course, what happens? The enemy says, well, nobody's watching this side and it's awfully difficult to climb up, but I think we can do it. And so twice that fortress was captured. Not once in history, but twice that fortress was captured because nobody was watching all it would have taken was one guy standing on guard, watching as people climbed up, and they could have alerted the citadel, they could have been ready for the attack, but they were overconfident. They thought, oh, nobody can climb up there, we've got that, uh, it's, it's, it's impenetrable. And so we as Christians, we get the same mindset. We think, oh, that battle's been fought. We've won that battle. The enemy can't attack us there. We've got, it's clearly spelled out in our doctrinal statement. And so nobody's watching. Nobody's keeping guard. And the enemy, he sneaks up while we're not looking. He captures our institutions. He captures our churches. He turns them into antichrist institutions. And this happens over and over and over. How many institutions and buildings has the church built that have remained faithful over the centuries? Where can you go and find a church and say, it's still preaching the word of God today, 300 years later? It just doesn't happen. Where can you go and find Christian colleges and seminaries and say they're just as faithful to the Word of God as the day they were founded? It doesn't happen because Christians are naive. Christians are not watchful. They're not being careful. They assume, oh, he's a nice guy. He talks so well. He's so talented and gifted. Let's let him in. Let's put him in positions of authority. And time and time again, good Christian movements are destroyed Because of a lack of watchfulness. Paul appeals to us. Watch out for. Be scoping out the heresy and those who are sneaking in. Now, turn with me also to the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 through 20. Not only am I going to encourage you to be a heresy hunter this morning, but I'm going to encourage you to be a fruit inspector. All right? So... We're going to be kind of fighting fundamentalists today. We're going to be the heresy hunters and the fruit inspectors because we want to obey the command of the Apostle Paul to be scoping out the false teachers, to mark them. And how do we know? How do we know who's a false teacher? Well, look at Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 through 20. Jesus warned us, beware of false prophets. And false prophets correspond with false teachers, according to Second Peter chapter 2, verse 1. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Those of you men who were here when we watched the video on the infiltration into the church, and particularly the Southern Baptist Convention, of the Marxist ideas of social justice, you remember that there was a man in that video who was working in the institution and that he was eventually fired, budget cuts, because he was not willing to hide his testimony about how God saved him from a homosexual lifestyle. And so when he was talking with uh, the, the leadership, and they were deciding on what was going to be talked about at the conference, the, the annual conference, there was, there was something on the agenda about how Southern Baptists would say that We're not going to, in our colleges, our educational systems, our institutions, use non-disclosure agreements. A non-disclosure agreement is usually because you've got something to hide, right? The truth loves the light, and darkness loves to hide. And so if you're having people sign non-disclosure agreements, you've got to ask, what are you hiding? Why do you need to hide? And so then he was asking, well, why do we have this in here? And he found out, well, it's because... All of these Bible colleges and Bible seminaries are making their staff sign non-disclosure agreements. Now, you can tell a good tree by its fruit. Are they honest? Are they forthright? Do they speak out of both sides of their mouth? Do they take things down from their website and not explain why they're taking it down from their website? What are they hiding? And this is a sign of false prophets, false teachers who are in sheep's clothing but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Now, we as a church, we have to recognize. I'm speaking we, I'm not just talking about our local congregation, but I'm talking about the church universal. That whenever the church starts to have positions of power and money and influence, you're going to have to have extra special care and guarding and watching over those positions. Because positions of power, money, honor, and influence are exactly where Satan is trying to infiltrate constantly. And so we must have the highest standards, and we must make sure that we are keeping the gate carefully so that enemies are not entering into the church. How many warnings about false teachers do we have in the New Testament? Well, this is not a complete list, but it's a list I put together a few years ago. I thought I'd put it up here again for you. There's a number of verses that are also warnings about false teachers that are not on this list. But you'll notice it's something that the Bible talks about a lot. Notice also, if we come to the pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy, chapter 1, chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 6, 2 Timothy, Titus, that here when we get to the pastoral epistles, there's a whole lot about this subject and so what is a pastor supposed to do that's what the pastoral epistles are they're letters to pastors telling pastors what they're supposed to do and what are pastors supposed to do well they're supposed to guard the flock from false teachers that's our job you feed the flock with the truth and you fend off the wolves and who are the wolves they're the false teachers They're the ones who are trying to give different doctrine, contrary to what the apostles preached, contrary to the Lord Jesus Christ, as Paul says there in Romans chapter 16. If you're not protecting the flock from false teachers, you're not doing your job as a shepherd. If you're not naming false teachers, if you're not talking about the actual issues that are being used by Satan to undermine the truth, then you need to get out of the ministry. You're not a pastor if you do not protect the flock from wolves. Woe to the shepherds who do not protect the flock. Now, I told you that I want you to be a heresy hunter. I told you I want you to be a fruit inspector. I also want you to be a fighting fundamentalist. Now, this doesn't undo anything I said last week. You can be both. You can be the warmest, most kind-hearted person in the world and still be a fighting fundamentalist. The importance of doctrine, the importance of separating from false teachers is highlighted here in Romans chapter 16. Notice what Paul says. Not only do you watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught, but what's the second command? Avoid them. When he says avoid them, what he means is, you don't let them be a part of your church. You don't let them be a part of your organization. You kick them out. 2 John chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, we looked at last week. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. Forever greets him, takes part in his wicked works. If somebody's teaching contrary to the doctrine of the apostles, delivered once for all to the saints, you don't greet them. You don't give them a place to stay. You don't help them in any way. You avoid them. Now, God is gracious, and we also are gracious because we are following the instructions of God. And throughout Scripture, God makes it clear that before we kick out a false teacher or a false brother... We warn them. We give them opportunity to repent. And so Titus, one of the pastoral epistles, Paul writing on the same subject of those who cause divisions, he says, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. The scripture is clear. Avoid them, have nothing to do with him. This would be called shunning in some circles. And I think that's a fine word to describe what Paul is commanding here. They're not a brother, they don't have any part of what we're doing. Until they repent, they are not with us, they are against us. But notice that God gives the chance, he gives the warning. He did this even with Jezebel. Back in Revelation 2 and 3, one of the churches has a self-proclaimed prophetess, whom God calls Jezebel, whether that's her actual name or whether that's a name that Christ gives to her because of her spiritual similitude to the Old Testament Jezebel is not clear in the context. But this Jezebel, as she's called, calls herself a prophetess and she's teaching and leading, misleading God's people to commit immorality. What could be more hateful to God than someone who is causing his beloved children to enter into immorality? Think about your children and the love that you put into them, how you try to guide them on the right path, and somebody comes into their life and, and trips them up and sends them down a dark path. Well, that's how God feels about those who enter into the church and mislead his children. He says it's better that a heavy millstone would be laid around your neck and you be cast into the sea than you make one of these little ones stumble. So God feels very strongly about this. But even though she is doing something so wicked. God still gives her time to repent. Jesus Christ tells the church, I gave her time to repent, but she doesn't want to repent. So God gives an opportunity for correction, for repentance, and we must always do the same. But after a first and second warning, that's it. They are out until repentance is found, genuine repentance. Now, not only does this apply to those who are public teachers, but it also applies to any Christian who wants to be a part of the work of Christ. Come with me also to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians 5, verses 9 through 11. This whole chapter is very good on this subject. In the opening verses, it talks about the sexual immorality that is being tolerated among the Christians in Corinth. And he goes on and rebukes them for that. And he talks about in verse 6, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Sin is like leaven. If you allow sin in the church, if you don't confront it, if you say, well, I know that you're leading a life that is opposite God, that you're disagreeing with God's word and sound doctrine, and you refuse to repent, but we really want to reach you We really want to show Christ's love to you. So we're going to let you stay here among us so that we can show how gracious and loving we are. And God says, through the Apostle Paul, that is foolishness and disobedience. That is a very costly love and grace because sin is leaven. And if you don't clear it out, it's going to spread. This is how denominations die. They tolerate sin. And once sin is tolerated, it goes everywhere. He says, cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. And he goes down into verse 9. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed, or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside, purge the evil from among you. Now, if the contemporary evangelical church had a biblical concept of what the church was, then they would understand why this is such an important command. However, when you've got seeker churches that seem to only exist in order to draw a crowd and to have a a worship center, well, then it doesn't make a whole lot of sense because the whole point is to, to bring people in Who are unsaved, and they can stay in unsaved as long as they want to because we're just a worship center. We're just preaching the gospel and trying to get people saved. That's not what the church is. The church is not a place where you worship God and invite the world to come and worship God along with you and hope that they're going to become Christians. The church is a holy family, the church is the place where God dwells in the Spirit where the work of God is done. We are here to train you, to equip you, to do the work of the ministry. And that work can only be done with holy hands and pure hearts. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5 says, The goal of our instruction, all this instruction I'm giving you, it has a goal. Do you know what that goal is? It's love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. If you don't have a sincere faith, if you don't have a good conscience, if you don't have a pure heart, You can't love. That's where it comes from. It comes from those things. And so the word of God, it purifies our heart. It protects the conscience from evil and sin. It produces within us a faith that is not put on, but is real and genuine, so that we are able to love one another the way that God has loved us. We're not going to reach the world by becoming worldly. We're going to let the light shine in the lighthouse by loving one another. The whole world will know you are my disciples if you have love from one another. So if we don't have purity, if we don't have sincerity, we've got nothing. We're not a lighthouse. Not a lighthouse. Two different mindsets about ministry, about the church. We've got to get back to a, a biblical ecclesiology so that we can have a practical ministry that is pleasing to God and is functional and is actually accomplishing God's work in the world. So we separate from false brethren. If someone claims to be a Christian but is sexually immoral or is an idolater or a drunkard or is a swindler, they're not welcome to be a part of what we're doing. We don't even eat with them disassociate from false brothers very important that the churches understand and recognize this we are inviting the false brothers we are so pleased that we've got so many false brothers attending our church that is not something to be proud of your boasting is not good clean out the old leaven so that you may be a holy lump in the lord's work all right So why is this so important? Why are we supposed to avoid the false teachers? Well, let's look at the danger back in Romans chapter 16, verse 18. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. There are many people who claim to be Christians, who claim to be in Christ, who claim to be Christian workers, Christian authors, Christian speakers, but they are not serving the Lord Christ. They are serving their own appetites, and it suits them. It suits their purposes. It suits their goals. It suits their desire for honor, desire for money, desire for prestige, desire for power. It suits them to be Christian leaders, but they're not Christian leaders. They're leading people away from Christ. Such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And now Christians sometimes say, well, you shouldn't judge people's motives. Well, tell that to the Apostle Paul. Tell that to the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't want to be more Christian than Jesus and his apostles. Jesus judged the motives of many people in his day. you say, well, you're not Jesus. You don't know people's hearts. That's true. The Apostle Paul followed in Jesus' example. And said, it's the motives of the heart that lead to the bad actions. You can judge the tree by its fruit. If the fruit is bad, then you know that the tree is bad. A bad tree does not produce good fruit. You can't say, well, they're teaching against the Bible, but I know they have good motives. How do you know? Now you're the one judging the heart. The only way that you know how to judge the heart is according to the actions that come out of the heart, the words that are coming out of the mouth. That's how you know the heart. You're not going to know it perfectly, but you get a pretty good idea. The best idea we can get. And how are we going to scope out and keep an eye on false teachers if we don't try to judge the heart according to the actions and the words? The Word of God judges the motives. And the Word of God says over and over again that the motive of false teachers is greed, pleasure, and honor turn with me to first timothy chapter six first timothy chapter six verses three through ten if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our lord jesus christ and the teaching that accords with godliness assume they have good motives and have a good-hearted conversation with them that's not what it says that's what evangelicals do No, but the Word of God says that person is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. Now, is this a way to make friends and influence people to go around and say, you're puffed up with conceit and you understand nothing? No, Christians don't say that. Well, that one does. Are we better than the Apostle Paul? Are we more loving, more generous, more kind? Yeah, be careful with that. Jesus, Paul, and the apostles repeatedly, including the Old Testament prophets, insult people to their face. And they are the most loving insults that have ever occurred. You have warrant to insult false teachers. You have warrant to offend them to their core. You have warrant to unmask them in the eyes of people because you have the Word of God. And the Word of God says... This is who they are. They are puffed up with conceit and understand nothing. They have an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words. Quarrels about words. (sighs) I was so disappointed in the Southern Baptist Convention, as they've been disappointing me a lot recently. The issue came before the convention what about women pastors? go back to our statement of faith and our statement of faith says that the office of pastor is supposed to be for men according to scripture, 1 Timothy 3 and all that. And now there's Southern Baptist churches that are not abiding by that and so people are saying, well, what are we going to do? Here's people that are going against the doctrine of our convention. So what? does it matter. And so they form a committee and the committee gets together and the committee gives a report and they said, we don't know how to answer this question. We need a year to talk about What is a pastor? So they're going to talk about what is a pastor for the next year and then they're going to come back and make a decision on whether or not women can be pastors. Quarreling about words. And some of the godly men in that convention stood up and were so exasperated and said, if we have to form a committee to talk about every single word, then then we are doomed as a confessional church. How can we be a confessional church if we don't even know what the meaning of a pastor is? Every time a controversy comes up, well, I don't know. Some people think this word means this. Some people think this word means that. And you get this controversy because people have this quarreling about words which produce envy and dissension and slander and evil suspicions. Notice this. It's not those who are speaking the truth that are causing dissension. Does Jesus cause dissension? We talked about how Jesus was a divider. But what's really the cause of the division that Jesus brings into the world? Is it Jesus or is it sin? Is it unbelief? See, evil is what divides. Falsehood is what divides. What is supposed to unite us is not a lie. We wouldn't be in a good place if we were all united behind a lie. But we're in a good place when we're all united with the truth. The truth is what unites. There's one truth. There's any countless number of lies. Trying to unite the world behind lies is pretty difficult. There's so many of them. But if you can unite people with the truth, you've got a true unity. You've got a basis that is lasting, a basis that is good and has good fruit. And so the tactic of the enemy, don't fall for this. He's going to hit you with this over and over again. You say, those fighting fundamentalists, those heresy hunters, those fruit inspectors, they're the ones who are causing the dissension. They're the ones who are causing the ruckus and the slander. Why would we even have to talk about this at the convention if people weren't saying, well, you shouldn't have women pastors? We should just let the churches have women pastors and, you know, not criticize and do whatever people think is right. If people were just doing what the Bible says, there'd be no discussion. There'd be no dissension. There'd be no division. Who caused the division? The liars. The misleaders. The false shepherds. They are the ones who are causing the division. Now, the tactic of the enemy is always to blame others for what you yourself are doing. Have you seen this? The tactic of the enemy is always to blame others for what you yourself are doing. You have a riot? You smash all kinds of property and windows and destroy businesses? Is it your fault? No! It's other people that caused the riot. You made me riot! The enemy's always going to blame others for what they themselves are doing. And so don't think that it's the people who are preaching the truth who are causing division. It's the people who are preaching falsehood that are causing division. The truth has been delivered once for all to the saints. This is the unity of the faith that we are pursuing together (sighs) with humility and with love, but also with great carefulness and guarding, especially offices of leadership. But the whole church needs to be holy and walking with the Lord. Well, there's a lot more here that I would like to share with you. And so, once again, we'll... Split the sermon, and we'll have the beginning of our sermon next week on being a separatist, a fighting fundamentalist, a fruit inspector, and a heresy hunter. All of those terms that are used to deride those who love the truth. Let's just go ahead and claim them and say, okay, great, I'll be all those things. You can make fun of that all you want, but we know what the scripture says, and we know who's on the Lord's side. Let's have a word of prayer. Lord God, I thank you for a congregation that is on guard against heresy. Lord, I thank you that even before I came here, the elders of this church were discerning, looking for what is true, and being careful to not allow the church to be led astray by falsehood. Lord, we know that there are Christian leaders in the world who look very successful. They speak words that are very persuasive, And their personality is such that you just can't help but like them. Lord, I pray that you would keep us sound in the faith. That you would give all of us the ability to discern truth from error. And the courage to be able to confront error. Not only in the doctrine that is taught, but also in our lives that are lived. Lord, may we be helping one another to have that sincere faith. That good conscience to have that love that flows from the instruction that we find in Holy Scripture so that you can be pleased with what happens in this church and that 200 years from now, because of our faithfulness and the faithfulness of our children and grandchildren and those whom you will bring to this church, Lord, that we will have guarded what has been entrusted to us and that this pulpit will still be preaching the unmixed word of God until Jesus Christ comes. We pray it for our good and for your glory. Amen.